0: It is so good to be able to sing God's praises together. And I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes we're we're singing. And number one, I love hearing our congregation sing. I love that we're not, you know, sitting here, you're an audience watching performers. No, we're all performing for the Lord, singing to Him. But I also kind of step back sometimes and go, I wonder what this sounds like to God. Do you ever do that? Like, what does this sound like to him? This is an offering of praise to him. And the beauty is this. This is the Lord's day. This is the, the first day of the week. This is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And what that means is that God's people around the world are offering praises to him on this day. And I was, we were singing that song, Stronger, earlier. And, and I, I remember being uh, in, the, in the Dominican Republic and being with brothers and sisters there and hearing them sing this song. In, in that beautiful dialect of Spanish, Portuguese that, that, that they sing with, you know And it's just like It's beautiful And then you think about uh, Our brothers and sisters in, in, in Kenya They're singing to God Right now And then you think of uh, The islands of, of, uh, of Micronesia And you know There's an island there called Truck Island They call it Chuk But they sing in chukese And they're praising God I'm telling you right now, you've never experienced a tin shack sound like a cathedral before unless you've been in this building with these brothers and sisters singing. And the fact is, God's people are praising Him around the world. What what we are here, we're a small part. We're a a significant part. Every part is significant to the Lord. But we're a small part of what God's doing around the world. They're saying by 2050, 40% of Christians will reside in Africa. That's to say, nothing of Asia. God is at work. The gospel is moving, and, and we have every reason to rejoice. And so, uh, it's a joy to gather and to sing his praises. We're going to be also doing some other gathering in, the, in uh, some weeks ahead uh, on September 10th, uh, because prayer really is the heartbeat. It's the breath of the Christian life. And, and we're called to pray uh, by ourselves before God, seeking a time alone with him in prayer, but we're also called to gather together as brothers and sisters in prayer. And so we're going to be having a concert of prayer on Sunday, September 10th, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. I just want to encourage you to, to come be here at that. Now, people are going, hey, wait, concert. What do you mean concert? Is it going to be singing? Is it going to be praying? Just show up, okay? Just come. Now, I do want to note concert, that word doesn't just mean music, it means to come together, it means agreement. It means cooperation. That's another definition of that word. And, uh, and so it's a time for us to gather together for that in that way. So um, if, if we're, um, you know, not seeking God in prayer, we're pretending we can do this by ourselves. And we don't want to live that way. So please do join us for that time. We'll, you'll get more details. As we get, as we get closer, you'll get more details. Uh, On on August 27th, 1883, the earth let out a noise louder than it has made ever since. It was at 10.02 a.m. when this sound emerged from the island of Krakatoa, which sits between Java and Sumatra in Indonesia. And it was heard... 2,000 miles away in Western Australia and even 3,000 miles away in the Indian Ocean Island of Rodriguez. In all, it was heard in over 50 different geographical locations. And that's insane. That that would be like uh, being in Boston and hearing a noise come from Dublin, Ireland. And by the way, for the sound to travel from Ireland to Boston would take about four hours at the speed of sound to get there. And you think, well, what what could possibly cause that kind of an earth-shatteringly loud bang? And really, it's the volcano at Krakatoa. It had just erupted with a force that tore the island apart. It emitted a plume of smoke that reached 17 miles into the sky. And the explosion also created a deadly tsunami. So there were 100-foot waves crashing on various shorelines in various places. There were 165 coastal villages that were destroyed completely. 36,000 to 120,000 people lost their lives. The British ship Norham Castle was 40 miles from Krakatoa at the time of the explosion. And this is what the ship's captain wrote in his log. Quote, so violent are the explosions that the eardrums of over half my crew have been shattered. My last thoughts are with my dear wife. I am convinced that the day of judgment has come. So there was a, a barometer at, at Batvia Grassworks about 100 miles away. And it registered 172 decibels of sound pressure. That is loud. Think of it this way. A jackhammer, if you're right next to it, that's 100 decibels. If you're standing near a jet engine, that's 150 decibels. The human threshold for pain is about 130 decibels. And the, this explosion registered 172 decibels 100 miles away. So, as this explosion went off, another amazing fact is that for five days afterwards, there were weather stations around the globe that were registering a spike in pressure, and it occurred approximately every 34 hours. You know why? That's about how long it takes for sound to travel around the planet. So, this eruption happened at Krakatoa, and it circled the globe three to four times in every direction for about five days. Why do I bring this up? Because you know what? That's exactly what's happening in the Gospel of Luke as we embark upon Luke chapter 3. You know what's happening? The good news about the Lord Jesus Christ is beginning to just sound out. It's starting. Bam! And it's resonating. And it's having an effect as it spreads from that point there in Jerusalem around the world. But as this this explosion of sound is beginning, we find that it's going to come about in a very interesting way. If you go ahead and open to Luke chapter 3, it's on page 46 in the Bible on the chair rack in front of you. The angel Gabriel has come and given the prophecy of John the Baptist's birth to to Zacharias and Elizabeth. and, and, And then John was born just as it was foretold. And now we're about to see... John the Baptist embark upon his public ministry. Luke chapter three, beginning with verse one. "And out of honor for the word of God, would you please stand and follow along as I read? Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Eritrea, and Trachontius, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to ourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the ax is already laid at the root of the trees so that every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Now, while the, people, while the people were in a state of expectation, all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. John answered and said to them all, "'As for me, I baptize you with water, "'but one is coming who is mightier than I, "'and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. "'He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. "'His winnowing fork is in the, his hand "'to thoroughly clear his threshing floor "'and to gather the wheat into his barn.'" and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Let's pray. Lord, we we come to you now and ask that you would help us to receive your word, that your spirit would, would move in such a way to change us, to change our hearts, to cause us to see you in a clearer way, to grasp more clearly this gospel proclaimed, a gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so we ask that you would accomplish these things amongst us now in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. So the ministry of John the Baptist, while you talk about the gospel beginning to sound out in this declaration, it reverberated throughout the region. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to see what happens when God's gospel sounds out. And and there are several things we're going to find. The first is this, when the gospel sounds out, the gospel that's God's gospel, the good news from God, when it sounds out, first it unmasks worldly status as worthless. You've got to love how this chapter starts. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, who's Caesar? He's the ruler of the known world. And then it goes from there to describe other great leaders of that time, from Pontius Pilate to Herod to his brother Philip. These are all the people who were who were the happening leaders. And yet, what's interesting is, even as these leaders are listed out, not only are we told that this happened at a certain time in history, right? It gives us a marker, which goes back to Luke's purpose in the beginning, when he said, hey, Theophilus, I'm writing this to you because I've researched this. It really happened. And these are the facts. So not only does it anchor us in a particular time, it also shows us how fleeting... Worldly greatness is. I mean, I mean, think about it. You know, you got these sentences that, that list out these mighty men with great credentials and prominence. And yet, the main thrust of this phrase doesn't come until the end of verse 2. Why? Because the main thing is this: the word of God came to John. All that's just a setup. That's, it's basically like a backdrop. It's sort of like a, a frame. But it's not the main thing at all. But if you were to say that to any of those people in that list, hey, by the way, do you realize this, Caesar? Um, you're not the main thing. What? How dare you? Yeah, well, it won't be long before uh, Caiaphas is going to be deposed, as high priest. And frankly, it won't be long before Caesar would be uh, removed in, in, in several years from then. As a matter of fact, by the time Luke writes this gospel, uh, Tiberius is no longer Caesar. <laughs> so you can almost see Luke writing this. He's going, hey, remember Tiberius when he was Caesar? Yeah, no more. Gone. Done. And so, so for us, it would be, be kind of like, you know, yeah, in the, in the time when, when, you know, this person was president of the United States, and this person was governor of California, and this person was a big deal in Silicon Valley, and this person was a big producer in Hollywood, and, and New York, and Paris, and Munich, and da 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 There was this little guy in Clayton, California. Where? You ever go somewhere and feel like, where is that? It's like, okay, San Francisco, yeah, okay. It's, it's from there, you can go, you know. Yeah. There's a there's a way in which we find that the main event, the big deal is this word that comes from God to John. And you can even see the different locales that are listed here from Rome to Judea to Galilee to to these different regions of, of of Abilene and other places. And now where does it come to them? The wilderness. The wilderness. The nowheresville of nowheresville. Nothing. It's the wilderness. That's what's really happening. And so I think we need to understand that, yeah, the worldly status that is so often elevated around us, we've got to understand something. The gospel is resounding out. There's been a massive sounding of the gospel that's reverberating around the world right now. And that's the real news. That's what's really happening. And so we've got to be guarded that we don't get caught up in the sort of here and nowness of and everything. Does not mean we should be detached and completely unrelated to or engaging in it? Of course not. But let's realize it's not the main thing. You know, because frankly, those, those things that are the main thing are going to be here and gone. No one ever names their kid Tiberius. By the way, if you are named Tiberius, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to insult you. But look, it's not a prominent name. Lots of people named John. Isn't that interesting? So the question is, do you see life this way? Are you, are you really aware of what's actually important right now? Do you realize that if you're an ordinary follower of Jesus That means that God has got massive plans for you to accomplish mighty things Because the ordinary Christian life is lived out supernaturally Empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in a way that honors God To love God and to love others because he first loved you That's radical. And that's also very not valued by the world and the culture around us. But I love how God sets up the stage here of the gospel emanating out from this place by first setting up these massive rulers, these massive leaders, these great ones, and then it's almost like the movie, like, You've, you've, the shot comes in on these great people, great things, and then it zooms out, and pretty soon they're in the background, and now the, the focus becomes John in the wilderness. And the word that has come to John. So let's see things from God's perspective. And let's not get caught up in the, the false glamour and greatness that's around us. What does that mean for you? It might mean that you need to go before the Lord and go, Lord, I'm sorry, I've been pursuing whatever this thing is that seems, you know, I'm really, I will really have arrived when I achieve this status or when I am accepted by these people or when I own this or my bank account reaches this or I buy this or whatever it is. Realize, no, God, God's doing something big and, and what he's doing is better and more thrilling and more exciting. It probably means for every time you even get a blip of news, either in your feed or in your ear, it means you're going to spend 10 times more time in here. When God's gospel sounds out, it not only unmasks worldly status as worthless, but secondly, it declares warning and hope. It's very interesting. A lot of times we don't associate those two things together, do we? Well, wait, if there's hope, there wouldn't be warning. Well, if there's warning, well, there's no hope in that. Well, not from the vantage point of what John's doing here. John the Baptist comes out, and what what does he say? He he warns them, certainly, in in verses 7 and following. He says to the crowd, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Whoa, I kind of wish John was more direct, don't you? Like, wow, kind of beats around the bush. You know, just, what do you mean? What are you trying to say? No, and he calls it out. He basically calls them what? You're a bunch of snakes. Who's he talking to? The religious. Note that, he's talking to the religious. These are people that go to church. These are people that read their Bibles. These are people who, who give money. They're involved. And he's saying, you're a brood of vipers. Why? Well, I think we get a clue right here from the passage. Look at what he says at the end of verse 8. Don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What are they resting in? Their pedigree. Oh, yeah. I'm from this family. You know, I grew up in the church. I've always known God. I'm from the right kind of stock so I'm acceptable to God and John's saying don't even try it because your religious pedigree cannot save you before a holy, holy, holy God And then he goes on to say, look, you think you're children of Abraham and Abraham's your father? Well, guess what? God can take these stones. He's standing in the wilderness. There are stones around him. See these stones? God can raise up from those stones children of Abraham. He's likely uh, referring back to those Old Testament passages that would talk about hearts of stone that need to become hearts of flesh. He's saying your hearts are hard. You might be religious, but your heart is hard toward God. You might have the right moral standards, but you don't keep those moral standards that you claim to hold to. You need forgiveness. And guess how that forgiveness comes? By repentance. And that's when he offers hope as well. You can see in the prophecy there given by Isaiah, 600 years before John was born... (laughs) Isaiah prophesied this very thing. And you'll notice how it's all these obstacles, all these paths are now being straightened and made level. In other words, the king is coming. That's what they would do. When a king would enter into an area, when royalty would come, people would go before him and they would, they would clean up the, the, the roads and they would make things more level. You know, they did not have four-wheel drive or suspension, okay? You did not want your, you know, carriage, you know, going. They, they made it nice, clean, clean. And then what would happen? He would be able to come in on a smooth road. But here, notice the purpose, verse six, that all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's striking in two ways. Number one, it's hitting the religious people of that time because they're thinking, no, no, no. We're Israel. We are Abraham's children. Salvation's for us. They missed the entire point. The the entire Old Testament is saturated with language that called God's people, Israel, to be a light to the world, to the nations. But they got turned in on themselves and they took their privileged position and made it sort of like this myopic obsession almost where they just were into them and what they were about and they excluded and rejected and pulled away from and frankly lacked love toward the nations around them. So here, that prophecy is being reiterated. All flesh, that means everybody is gonna see what? The salvation of God. And that's the other thing that's surprising. There is salvation available to all. You'll notice that he's, in verse three, John is bringing about this warning and this hope and he's saying there's some way you can respond to this message and you can engage in a, in a baptism of repentance. And that's what brings us to this third thing that happens when God's gospel sounds out. It it doesn't just unmask worldly status as worthless and declare warning and hope. Thirdly, it also calls for repentance, and so in verse 3, you see he came into the district around the Jordan and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Baptism was something that, that, that people understood at that time. As a matter of fact, in, in other gospel accounts, we find the religious leaders coming to John the Baptist and going, hey, why are you, why are you baptizing these people? And it's noteworthy that they don't say to him, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> they know what he's doing. Why? Because in the Old Testament if someone of the nations wanted to become a follower of Yahweh, they would go through the the rite known in the Old Testament as sort of the the rite of the proselyte, or the one who would want to turn and become a part of God's people. And as a result of that, what they would do is they would be immersed. They would be baptized. They would be submerged in water to show the identification and cleansing from their old life to their new life. Very interesting that that is the same picture that John is using now, only who's he talking to here? Children of Abraham. Huh. But wait. In their minds they're going, I thought that was for the proselyte. I thought that was for someone who is not one of God's people. I thought that was for someone who who is far from God. And I think John's point is exactly and that's you. And so you can see why the religious religious leaders would ask him that. Again, not what are you doing? No, why are you baptizing? Because you're far from God. And you need to repent. This call to repentance, the Greek word means a change of mind that results in a change of direction. But the, the the word for mind is in the term itself, and uh, means to be. Again, your mind is set one way, and now your mind is changing, and it results then in the direction of your life, or that what the Bible would call your walk changing. That's repentance, and uh, and we get this even clarified further. As people asked John then, okay, well, what are we supposed to do? So they understood, okay, there's a, they're convicted. And John's preaching and there's conviction coming and they're going, you know what? You're right. I am far from God. I might have a religious background. Maybe, maybe I'm in, you know, a house of people who are walking with God, but I'm not one of them. What do we need to do? And so you have different segments asking him different things. And it's really actually fascinating to look at. So verse 10, the crowds are the first to ask, what should we do? And what does he say to them? The man who has two tunics, verse 11, should share with him who has none. And he who has food, do likewise. In other words, for them... Repentance means you're going to turn away from hoarding, away from keeping things for yourself, away from being so focused on you, your needs, what you want, and now you're going to share with generosity with those who don't have those things. This person has two tunics. Uh, You really only used to wear one tunic at a time. You've got another one. There's someone who needs one. You give it to them. So there's a turn toward generosity. Tax collectors then would come to be baptized. Now again, for the, for the Jewish person in that moment, they're going, what are they doing here? Tax gatherers were despised because they were essentially traitors who were now in cahoots with Rome to oppress God's people. And as a tax collector, you were given the, uh, sort of a, a region, an area. And, and they wanted you to be a, of, you know, Jewish descent because that way you knew the language, you knew the customs. Rome was really good at taking people from within the cultures that they conquered and then elevating them a little bit to keep control. And so with the tax collector, you knew the culture, you could speak the language, you were aware of what people did. You were, you were a, previously you were an insider, but now you've turned to Rome and you're on kind of the, the payment plan from Rome. And it was real convenient too because what Rome said to these tax collectors is this, you need to give us this amount and whatever you take above that, that's yours. Go for it. And so that, that's what they would do. And they had a tax for almost everything. Oh, you want to go through this gate? Okay, well, that's going to be, you know, eight drachma. You know what? Today, it's going to be 14. And you had, there's not, you had no recourse just, yeah, I want, I want a little more today. And they would just skim off the top whatever the excess was that they put down. So you could see how that would infuriate people. But these tax collectors, they're hearing John's message and they're going, wait a minute. Uh, there's, there's wrath coming, there's judgment coming. And John's saying, yes, there is. God is coming to judge. And they're going, whoa, whoa. What are we supposed to do? And you'll notice how he responds in verse 13. Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Which, by the way, that would be radical for a tax collector. (laughs) Imagine you're going through Jerusalem. You entered this one gate. You're like, yeah, 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 okay, here's the 20. You know, he only needs 10, but here's 20. Then you get somewhere else, and you finally arrive at some place, and three. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Okay, That, that, that would stand out. There's a third group. Oh, by the way, so what would that be? So the first group, what are you being repenting towards? Generosity. This group with the tax collectors, what's being repented towards? Or what are you turning towards? Integrity. Walk with integrity. And then the last one are soldiers. Very likely Roman soldiers. And again, if you are an Israelite in first century Rome probably the only people you can't stand more than a tax collector would be a Roman soldier. They were brutal. It was martial law all the time. That, you know, Pax Romana, you know, peace, Roman peace, it didn't come free, people. No, these troops cracked down on those who would would start a ruckus. That's why even in Acts, when there's different times that a riot started, the crowd goes, wait, you're right, we're out of here, we're done. You know, we we were gonna string up this Paul guy and kill him publicly, but you know what? You're right, this is a riot. We don't wanna do this, and they left. But here's what he says to the soldiers. Look at verse 14. They ask, what about us? What should we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely. So you can see what's happening there. Well, they would do that. Sometimes they might work with the tax collector. You know, hey, this guy's not paying up. Deal with him, I'll give you a cut too. Or accuse anyone falsely. If you wanted to do a false trial to bring about the verdict that you want against someone, you could hire a Roman soldier, they'll say whatever you want. But it's also fascinating to me that John goes deeper than the conduct. He actually goes down to the motive. Look at how verse 14 ends. Don't take money. Don't accuse anyone falsely. And be content with your wages. As a Roman soldier, you're paid. Be content. If you're content, you're not going to engage in all this other stuff. And so we would see that as another way that Repentance is shown when when the gospel of God rings out and we repent, we turn from discontentedness towards contentedness. Now I'm sure no one in this room struggles with generosity or integrity or contentedness. So I guess we can just move on now, right? Does that not hit all of us? You know what? If repentance is real, this is how we would see it. If repentance is real, it shows up in our level of contentedness versus grumbling. If repentance is real, it shows up in our wallets. Are we generous? Do we give? Do we care for others? If repentance is real, it shows up in our level of integrity and how we deal with others. Whether it be in our jobs or homes or families or neighborhoods or wherever it would be, it is fascinating that repentance is not just this sort of theoretical kind of spiritual thing that's disconnected from real life. No, it it, it changes the way we live. It's also interesting that that. John did not tell the Roman soldiers, for example, to turn around and, and, and kind of put on a peace demonstration in Rome and it, protesting the sort of military kind of dictatorship there. No. Or, nor did John say to the soldiers, you know what you've got to do, you got to stop being a soldier. He doesn't, no, he, be a soldier, carry out your job, even within a very corrupt government but do it in a way that demonstrates contentedness before God so that you don't engage in the perverse behavior of your other fellow soldiers. So when God's gospel sounds out, it unmasks worldly status as worthless, it declares warning and hope, it calls for repentance, it also exalts Christ in verses 15 through 17 I love what John does, right? I mean, <laughs> the more egotistical of that time. Maybe it had never heard, occurred to them, "Hey, are you the Christ?" Huh? Yes, yes I am. <laughs> you could see people doing that. Some did. John does not. John goes, no, I'm not, I am not him. And he exalts Christ because Christ is the exalted one. There is one coming, he says, who's mightier than I. I can't even untie the thong of his sandal. That was a task that was even considered lowly for the servants of that time. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that with the Christ. He's coming and he understands his mission I'm to prepare the way. And then he says, I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to baptize you. He's going to immerse you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And it seems like in that phrase, he's very much talking about the power of the Spirit, what's going to come at Pentecost, in the beginning of the book of Acts, when the church is born. Tongues of fire rested on the people there as they spoke in known languages they had never learned before. As a demonstration of the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus and the truth of the gospel in the establishment of the church. Amazing. So he's anticipating that. And then he goes back to that concept of judgment. There's a winnowing fork in his hand. He's going to clear the threshing floor. Back then, if you wanted to separate the wheat from the chaff, you would take the fork, you would scoop up the wheat, you throw it in the air, the wheat would fall back to the ground because it's heavier, the chaff would blow away. So Jesus is in the process of sorting who's really his and who isn't. And that's what should cause all of us to stop and go, wait a minute. Am I really his? Do I really belong to him? Are these signs of genuine repentance present in my life in an increasing way? Not perfectly, but is there growth? Am I living a life of repentance before God? Because that's what the Christian life is. But Christ is the only one who is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit and fire. When the gospel sounds out, an unmasked worldly status is worthless. It declares warning and hope. It calls for repentance. It exalts Christ. And lastly, it instills courage. We find here that this is the gospel. This is the good news about Jesus. John is proclaiming it in verse 18 with many other exhortations. But then notice, we go back to Herod the Tetrarch momentarily. By the way, this is Herod's son. So Herod the Great was the guy who built the temple. If you ever get to go to Israel, he's the guy that built the Masada fortress. Amazing leader. Terrifying leader. Mentally imbalanced leader. Okay, yes, but nonetheless, he was Herod the Great. This is his son. He's kind of like, everyone kind of knows Herod It's like, this one is like, he's the, the lowercase h Herod, okay? The tetrarch. There are four territories, essentially. He ruled over one of them. But, we find that Herod, this Herod, the Tetrarch, was involved in some, some very um, perverted activities in terms of taking his brother's wife for himself. And John uh, preached against that. He confronted Herod about that. And some people will look at that passage and say, see, John got out of his lane. He blew it. He should have just, 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 just stayed just, you know, preaching things about Jesus and he should have just left that real life stuff to somebody else Uh, but that's not what the passage is telling us at the same time others will take this passage and say that's right and that means preacher man you, Chris every week you need to be calling out power man you should be preaching against the president preach against the governor preach against all of them because that's what he did well not exactly because here's the thing. We find that Herod, in other passages, was very curious about John. John was kind of a spectacle to him. And he wanted to hear him preach. So John actually had an in, had a relationship with Herod. So he could call him out on this thing. Encourage. And I think that's the principle really for, for all of us. Who's in your sphere of influence? Who's around you? And do you speak the truth in love? Um, And so we find that there's great courage instilled by God as his gospel resounds. And I think we all need to have that kind of courage. Um, And we have to do so in such a way where the Lord is honored and we're not showing favoritism toward different people. We find that the Old Testament prophets did the same thing, didn't they? So Elijah, uh, he, he confronted Ahab and Jezebel. And, and, and you know what? Jesus even says this uh, of Israel. You know, when you long, I long to gather, gather you in as, as, you know, as little chicks are gathered to a hen. But what does he say? Israel, Israel, the one who kills and stones the prophets who were sent to them. That is a normal outcome for a prophet. And I think for us, we need to have the same kind of courage. A lot of times, we don't say anything at all because we're just afraid someone's going to be mad at us. They might not like us anymore. But I also think we need to be clear, this is about the gospel. We're not out there to correct people's behavior. We're not out there to try to say, you got to live according to this moral standard. It's you need Jesus like I need Jesus. And we call people, to repentance. And that's the beautiful thing about repentance. Repentance is is a change of mind. What it means is you were facing this way. You were trusting in this. And instead, as your mind turns, you are now trusting in Christ. That's why repentance and faith are linked throughout the New Testament. Believe. Why? Because you've been believing in something else. So when God's gospel surges forward, when God's gospel sounds out, when when God's gospel reverberates through the world, it unmasks worldly status as worthless, it declares warning and hope, it calls for repentance, it exalts Christ, it instills courage. And the question is this, have you heard God's gospel? And if so, have you responded with repentance? Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to to take hold of of the gospel as it sounds out. May we be used by you as a part of that resounding work that's, that's truly resonating throughout the world. May it be heard, may we respond with lives of repentance before you and may we, by your grace, call those around us to repent, to trust you, to believe and to receive the forgiveness of sins that comes through the Son, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. We ask that you would work in us in that way for your glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.